God-given, and it's all day. It's never been tropical in the squeeze. They make money or on excessive materialism and militarism. We know full well that racism is still that hound of hell. Testing one two. Yes, we got it. Oh, cool. I'm really excited. My I am as well. <laughs> okay, so hello and welcome to Now in Color, a podcast that brings those who have been erased in history back to life, giving them the voice and place in history that they deserve. I'm your host Sandy Chang, and I'm joined by Nico uh, this Gomez. This is Nicole Gomes, Nico for short. Nico for short. Um, that's all I've known you yeah, as. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, he's a New York-based writer and comedian who likes politics, policy, and soccer. Not necessarily in that order. Welcome, Nico. Oh, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. So, what or who are we bringing to life today? Uh, so today I wanted to talk about um, a strike. It was actually a series of three strikes that happened in 1968. <laughs> it was um, Ocean Hill Brownsville teacher strike um, started by the UFT in response to um, a, what was called a community control initiative in Ocean Hill Brownsville, which was a predominantly um, African-American, um, modestly Latino neighborhood in Brooklyn. Wow. Well, what does UFT stand for? Uh, so the United Federation of Teachers. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and why is this important for us to know specifically th- today? Yeah, I think uh, the nuances of the conflict are they speak pretty relevantly to um, the sort of the many different conflicts that we have politically and um, the fact that the the kind of divisions that we have between race and class and and um, power are they're a lot more nuanced and like visceral than than we um, necessarily assume that they are. Yeah, um, I read a little bit about this and, um, you know, it all started when seven or so teachers were just fired yeah. out of nowhere, it seemed like. Um, do you know if there was like an actual reason so, for y- that? Yeah, so the context behind that was um, uh, pretty... Uh, it was born out of a, a definite level of frustration. Um, basically, um, a lot of the background was in 1954 when Brown versus Board of Education came down. Um, you know, New York City public schools wanted to make efforts, concerted efforts, to integrate schools. But um, parents, uh, white parents in a lot of outer borough neighborhoods in Queens and Brooklyn kind of like fought those efforts um, and were pretty successful in in making sure that schools were not integrated. And so the narrative for black parents, a lot of black parents who saw basically the 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 meta context was from 1945 to 1965 new york city's like economy completely changed so it went from being kind of a manufacturing economy to sort of a service-based white-collar economy and 
education was a huge way in order to get into that world. Um, you could uh, test well in schools and things like that and be able to be prepared for jobs as clerical workers or, or a whole new generation of um, people whose parents had been manufacturing workers um, were able to kind of go into this white collar world as a result. And that benefited sort of white um, working class parents in the uh, outer boroughs. It did not benefit like the same influx of black parents who were coming to America or coming to New York at that same time. So they saw that their schools were um, not really preparing their kids to enter this world. And they wanted more of a control over um, like curriculum, um, more of a control over how what their teachers looked like. Because another aspect of this was that the UFT kind of had an advancement system for being a teacher and eventually being an administrator that black parents felt benefited the teachers. It it created a whole service civil service economy for them, but it didn't really benefit their kids. Yeah. Um, and so a large part of that day, that, that day when those UFT seven teachers were let go was really like the bubbling up of really what like was like a decade of um, attempts to create more power sharing attempts to like um, to have more of a say in how their kids were educated. That was just kind of, I guess, rebuffed. Right. That's so interesting because I feel like the same things are happening right now in New York City because uh, I've seen those town hall videos where like a lot of majority white parents are protesting integration of schools or like rezoning of districts and it's all like veiled racism when they say like well I don't want my kids to be with like stupider kids and it's just like well who are you really talking about Mm -hmm. and I think a large part of it was based on this sort of implicit idea that black children could not learn and so there was this character uh, not a character but a person his name was Rhodey McCoy Mm -hmm. you know um, and he he was sort of the head of this ocean. Well, there were, there were also two blocks, right? So there was black parents who were kind of aligned with like an, a Manhattan power elite, most notably Mayor Lindsay, people from the Ford Foundation who were pushing this idea for Ocean Hill, Brownsville community control. And then on the other block, there were kind of um, uh, ethnic middle-class white parents and the UFT, which was um, predominantly like Jewish teachers who resisted these efforts. And so the more interesting thing about this story is that it basically changed the, the power dynamics from where it had usually been um, uh, Jewish residents in New York where it had always um, kind of aligned with black residents on like an idea of like liberal reformism. They saw themselves more starkly in terms of being white citizens and shifted more to like ethnic middle class sort of Catholic um, whiteness. So that was that's a that's a pretty interesting and it gets pretty nasty towards the end. It's not I I honestly I had to I I still am working my way through it because it's it's pretty depressing and yeah um just like the few Wikipedia things I read and just yeah. a few articles I saw that were they were like passing out pamphlets about like oh black teachers are teaching violence instead of teaching like a curriculum and just like 
you know, just all these stereotypes. But then there's also like there's an anecdote of like what like um where uh, they invite some of the teachers to come back at a certain point because they had to be reinstated and then they incited like all of the um, the students to kind of harass and terrify these teachers, you know, and like just like a lot of anti-Semitism that was sort of tacitly encouraged and if not that explicitly encouraged and it became a proxy war for like other things yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I am a, a died in the wool liberal. I would, I would, have, I, there's so much more of me that's sympathetic to the concerns of the black parents in this book, but some of it is just, you know, how destructive it is. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's, it's disheartening and complicated, but I definitely recommend that people read it. The book is called the strike that changed New York. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I feel like a lot of this anti-Semitism and also anti-blackness still resonates today. Yeah, like even a- absolutely. With, like and even with like um, voting, mm-hmm. not to get like really depressing, but even like with Trump, a lot of um, the Jewish communities here voted for Trump, even though, you know, right. Well, right now what's happening is very similar to what happened to them in Nazi Germany. Certainly. And, um, yeah, I think you have a couple of things, right? You have also the controversy over this um, measure to expand enrollment to New York City specialized high schools to um, two kids from more high poverty schools and... Uh, large part of that would mean that it would increase the proportion of um, black and Latino students in these schools and there's like this huge backlash of you know it's all about like the great meritocracy of of New York and this idea that you know um the test, the the test is the most, um, it's the greatest arbiter of someone's talent. Like you don't need to game the system. You don't need to use your connections, but a large part of the book from the teacher's standpoint is that that emphasis on testing had its own, like it was problematic in so many ways, like it incentivized teachers to basically care more about civil service examinations Mm -hmm. than like actually teaching kids. And as a result, it like, it predominantly created a teaching body that was like overwhelmingly white as opposed to black and Latino in, you know, the, the neighborhoods that they taught in. Yeah. And yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, and how, so what happened in the end of this protest? Cause there was a six month long. Yeah. 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 From May to November of 1968. I, I, I just zoned out cause it got so depressing, but basically, <laughs> basically like it was a huge impasse and the state, Basically, um, they they took over, I guess, the school board and reinstated the teachers. And then at a certain point, they were going to allow the, the school board to get control after the strike had ended. Yeah. But I didn't get that far. I, at the point I was at, it was basically um, Mayor Shanker, or not Mayor Shanker, Alfred Shanker, who was the head of the UFT, was like in a standoff with John Lindsay, who was like this idea of this big proponent of, of community control. Yeah. Um, it's just so depressing. Um, 
that this is still happening today. Um, I think that's like, uh, what made you want to speak on this topic in particular out of all the depressing topics we could have talked about? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, outside of the value of like education, I I worked for a, um, a nonprofit news website called City Limits for a while. Mm-hmm. And we did a co-sponsor of a talk about the 1968 teacher strike at the Museum for the City of New York that got really contentious. This was like maybe six or seven years ago. And it got like really contentious. My boss at the time had to like get on stage and like, like calm a lot of frayed nerves. And it was something that was like really raw for like a lot of people on both sides, like felt super passionate about it. And also like the fact that it was 50 years ago, you know, this year, I definitely thought like enough people don't know about it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people. Yeah. I think even now a lot of Ugh, white liberals tend to just think that, you know, we're all like so happy and like living in this like post-racial society. But yeah, these things still happen all the time. And the fact that people are surprised that Trump got elected means that we were just kind of living under a rock for a long time too. And I think that's why it's important to highlight stories like this to show that, you know, history does repeat itself. Yeah, definitely. And definitely when it's definitely when it comes to things that are like you have to actually give up your power like when you have to actually give up something like that's reading this book that's what you really notice is you see kind of the hypocrisy or um just how not entirely like thorough people feel when they actually have to give some just give a measure of privilege up uh, yeah that's like all of that's the narrative everyone's talking about now. It's just like, I think there's so much backlash right now with everything going on is because a lot of people are giving up their comfort mm. and the comfort they've been living in forever. Um, yeah, and I, yeah. I would say also like you do see it and you you can read a book like this and you can read this sort of presentation of how um this generation was able to enter the middle class a white generation was able to enter the middle class through testing and hard work and all of these things and how you could see that kind of filtering into a perception of America and Americanness where like if you do work hard and if you do test well like you can succeed and you should succeed and why are these other people not being able to do that and you can you can absolutely or maybe I'm inferring more and from reading the book, but I think you can absolutely draw a straight line to like, we are doing things the right way at, in this time to like now where, you know, you have policies of like kids being separated at the border and like, um, any number of like terrible things and, and still being like, well, that's because they broke the law or that's because they didn't do things the right way and how, how coded that is. Yeah, for sure. Um, this actually reminds me of 
and maybe this is perfect that um, I'm Asian American yeah, yeah. Um, of the So let's the get Harvard, into it. Yeah. <laughs> you went to you went to Harvard? No, I didn't go to Harvard. Uh, okay. I went to like Andy Bernard, I went to Cornell. Oh, okay. I um, got into Cornell actually. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And did you go wait, you didn't go to Cornell? I didn't I did not. I went to the Northwestern. Oh, even better. I mean Cornell was oh wait, I don't know if I should start oh, disparaging. Yeah. Cornell was to me kind of depressing because mm. it was uh during the time, I don't know why I'm laughing. It was it's a defense mechanism. It was during a time when a lot of people started committing suicide. It was always like known as the suicide school, yeah. but it was when it was my freshman year when it got really bad and they started like putting in the nets and like oh, the wow. fences. Yeah, and there was like this whole talk of like you know what's going on, like what can we do? And a lot of the professors were like, it's not our fault that, yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's all this pressure that, you know students either put on themselves or parents put on them yeah. but yeah it was a really and i think the weather did not help because it was sure, dark yeah, all yeah, the time yeah. um, i mean i'm from rochester new york so oh. <laughs> i know I, I don't know ethica that well but like i know the culture of like yeah upstate coldness and weather and stuff yeah um for me because i came from southern california yeah. i was just like what the fuck is going on? It's so cold. It was like my first snow ever. Um, can I ask, like, what, did, can you identify with, like, maybe that culture of, um, you know, having parents who, like, wanted you to succeed in school and wanted you to do well in tests? Actually, no. It's so weird because a lot of people ask me that, like, did I have the stereotypical tiger parents? Mm -hmm. um, they were actually like, you need to calm down. Like, I put that pressure on myself. Yeah. Um, I remember this one time I got a B in high school in like uh, a test and I came home crying and like my parents were like, it's fine. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, where did you get this like neuroticism basically? So I like put that weird neurotic pressure on myself, but I think I let that go once I started going to college and I was just like, oh, everyone's pretty neurotic. Why do I need to do that anymore? Um, yeah, so it's like, it was, I think it was like this weird perfectionism that I, it was definitely like an anxiety thing probably, yeah. <laughs> um, which I still have today, but I'm working on letting it go by doing yoga and yeah. meditating. Yeah, that's another part of the, the book too, is just like that, like, um, like black parents had after a certain point had been able to kind of equate this idea of quote-unquote middle-class values with just an over-reliance on testing and over-reliance on like achievement that didn't really like help their kids in any way it didn't give them better conceptions of self it didn't focus on like developing like kids holistically and I, you know if nothing else I think that's pretty spot on right yeah that's what I um actually to circle back that's what I wanted to ask you because um the Harvard recent admissions thing that came out it's a lawsuit I believe right right it's a lawsuit and basically they were saying like there's bias towards Asian Americans where and this is like, this is really, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about this whole thing. Um, but basically they were saying that they accept less Asian Americans because there was like this monolith thing of like, oh, most Asian Americans don't have personalities or something like crazy like yeah. that. Um, but growing up, I remember like a lot of Asian Americans 
like Asian American friends that I had would be super against affirmative action because there was this like feeling that it was bias against us. And I was always for affirmative action because I still believe that Asian Americans still benefit from privilege Mm. in a way, even though we don't have as don't have white privilege and we are by no means white, you know, um, and we are still, you know, there's still stuff that we have to work out within our communities. So it's like, it's, it's, it's a weird thing that I have to confront lately. Like, Oh, affirmative action did not help me, but also, I don't know. It's just like a weird, like ground that I'm in. I'm still debating it. Yeah. I mean, I would say affirmative action definitely helped me, (laughs) you know, definitely gave me entree into, um, sort of getting access to Northwestern, getting a level of education that I, I mean, I would have gone to college anyway. Um, but uh, getting to go to that uh, a higher tier school was something that I always felt I needed to get to in order to get doors open to me. Like I would not, if I had gotten a degree from University of Buffalo as opposed to Northwestern, I always felt like, well, they would be more willing to look at my degree from Northwestern. Yeah. Um Yeah, that being said, I'd say probably the thing that I would attribute the the closest level of like professionalism that I I've been able to attain is really like my mom's decision to have me grow up in Rochester with my father as opposed to New York, because you I got educated around like white students I got an understanding of how to carry myself quote unquote in in that world that you know like student like Latino students black students who are mainly being educated around each other don't get and I think there's a complicated idea to that you know um construct of is it okay to have students of color educated around white students just for the benefit of being around white students but like if all of the jobs if the dominant culture is a white mainstream culture like not being exposed to that world does a tremendous disservice to so many kids and i see that I feel like I see that every day because I see so many like talented, smart, like capable, like black and Latino students like walking around in New York. And I I do not feel like their participation in the professional world of New York City, like it reflects their ability at all. Yeah, because there is still that implicit bias. And um, yeah, it's very difficult (laughs) so read the book everybody it's uh it's the feel good uh, it's the feel good story of the year yeah since we need more of those (laughs) this year um more times to cry in a grocery store which is now my weekly my weekly routine so you had you had something that you felt more people should know about as well is that right um yeah um well I don't really have anything prepared for 
for today. That's fine. Um, I just had like, I just wanted to learn with um, a guest, but I mean, I can talk about how, since this is the first episode and I'm so glad that you're my first guest ever. Um, I can tell you how I started this. It was basically, I, (laughs) I read about these conjoined twins in Thailand and they were the first Siamese twins, which you're not supposed to say anymore. They're just conjoined twins. Yeah. But because they were from the land of Siam, they were just like, oh, these Siamese twins. Um, and I was just like, I had no idea that this happened in America. So like what else had happened that I just don't know about? Because, um, and I'm sure I'll do a longer episode about this one day, but basically these this British guy. See, I'm so not researched, but basically a British guy. <laughs> he went to a village in Thailand, now Thailand, and saw this quote unquote creature. And it was like these conjoined twins because they were like swimming really fast. Uh, and he was just like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. I need to buy this. Yeah. Even though they're humans. Yeah. And the mom was like, sure, I'm super poor. So yeah. let's, let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> so they were bought, um, which is awful. And then something happened in between, made it their way to the United States, maybe just like the colonies at the time. I don't know. Yeah. But they became these like. Wait, what, like around what time was this? Um, it was like in the 1800s. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty early. Yeah. Um, I wish I knew specific dates, but basically, yeah, um, they came, they became these like circus people, circus freaks. Um, I'm trying so hard to be PC, but... (laughs) But I think eventually, like, they would be separated, right? No. So they were still conjoined, and they were, like, really smart in that, you know, they kind of played the game. They're just like, okay, we know we're being taken advantage of. Um, So they kind of used that to up their fame and, like, made a lot of money. Um, They got married to these uh, two sisters who were not conjoined, these two uh, white women actually and they had 21 kids together it's amazing and but but they own slaves so they kind of assimilated in a terrible way too um but yeah to this day their descendants still meet up and have family reunions so it's pretty cool and that's why i was like i need to do a podcast about people in history <laughs> yeah more people should know i guess you can call it like you know effed up things in history <laughs> yeah i know a lot of effed up things in history but yeah i think that's basically it right cool <laughs> yeah i don't, more we I don't have talk anything about. else to say about the the book um we can talk about current events yeah how it relates what what can we do now as people living in the world to stop this from happening more the segregation and the bias and racism how do we stop racism yeah (laughs) that's like yeah that's a long podcast it is um i think uh, there was an anecdote in the book of just basically about um how um like the black parents had had advocated for nominal power of um, this board or whatever, but because it wasn't linked to like electoral power, it would end up like really hurting them in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Because budget cuts and social service cuts would hit black communities more because politicians knew they could make those cuts without having to face consequences at the polls. 
then white parents would make it explicitly known that if you if you screwed us over, you would pay for it politically. And I'd probably say that's that's probably the best you can do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like there's there's a real and this is is in so many ways a a triumph of political power and and failings of it, too. Um, But, yeah, I would I would really hope that you can see the a future where you could build political power um, that gets people to uh, that gets to affect real change and real benefits for people. Um, yeah, I don't know. Also, in so many ways, just like the value of being willing to to walk in another person's shoes. Like I've I've had to step away from getting into arguments about people over this specialized high school test. Um, because it is so fraught and it is so challenging and you are so conditioned to think that your way is right and it yeah i think it behooves everyone to maybe see how another person sees things um but you know that being said i i I have a hard time seeing the way you know, uh, the other side politically where we're at. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) After the election, so many people were basically saying like, oh, this is the perfect time. Mostly white liberals. This is the perfect time to, you know, talk to the other side and like build a bridge. And I was just like, well, fuck them because my entire life there hasn't been a bridge and there hasn't been an attempt so why should i take on that emotional labor to build fucking bridges basically yeah um like you know even though i was born and raised in california like my entire my entire childhood i just remember things being like oh go back to china or you know being told just like random old white people in the streets would Mm -hmm. just say that to like a 10 year old kid like walking on the street yeah. and it's just like yeah I don't I'm not in the right place to build bridges <laughs> yeah I think yeah I think that is kind of like and you think about it in so many other ways like but just that's the whole funny thing that I think about like the aftermath of this like Barack Obama existence is just like you know he was the the epitome of somebody who finally like was able to demonstrate to the rest of America, to I guess basically white America, that we are normal, we are okay. Like that's how I, I'm first generation American. So much of like my upbringing was trying to demonstrate that, yeah. hey, I'm not I'm not any different from you. I am intelligent. I I do I my parents value the same things. They they have a strong work ethic and. Um, Obama was such the epitome of that and it was just asking like just to ask that indulgence of of looking at us the same as they are like we could not get (laughs) you know we had it for like eight years and like it just it resulted in like this complete sort of xenophobic you know um racist backlash and yeah i mean you see it in the book but then the the book what is so very interesting about the book 
and you know you you I know that there are probably people who are more intimately involved in it and could push back on me on, on stuff about it but like this was a generation that had just entered middle class like stability these were lower middle class whites who had just entered the like um a level of home ownership and a level of like wealth building and things like that and that generation is so they were so insecure about yeah losing that position and it came out in this strike and so you you have to be mindful of that yeah yeah i'm so not empathetic in that way yeah yeah for sure <laughs> i feel so bad but yeah, yeah i'm i'm just so angry all the time now yeah um, it's hard for me to find empathy i was listening to like jay-z's latest album jay-z and beyonce's album and like title X. yeah <laughs> is it on spotify yeah uh, i don't know i think it might be on spotify now okay. but it, it did make me kind of happy to listen to it because you're you're thinking of someone like jay-z as someone who was like completely failed by like the result being on the losing side of this conflict and yeah. like the fact that a generation was able to create hip-hop culture that becomes such a driving force in popular culture to succeed like when given like as little as possible it makes you happy yeah i would argue that like hip-hop culture is i mean now like very much like american culture it's like the foundation almost like everything goes back to hip-hop um even now they're like i mean there have always been asian american hip-hop artists coming out and now like k-pop is like turning into hip-hop but i have weird feelings about that too i feel like it's like a bit of cultural appropriation but that's another topic we can get into some other time (laughs) um but yeah i think it's like there are positives like in the media hopefully i at least i've been seeing a lot more representation in the media um a lot more stories are being told in this way um hopefully it just keeps going up from there that's my positive yeah I definitely think that people should know about bad stuff in history. Like, I think people should know about bad stuff in history. I think people should know about, like, yeah, ugly stuff in history because it isn't always black and white. And we we do not act in the way that we think we would yeah. when we're, like, actually faced with those situations. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, because not everything is, like, tied up in a perfect little mm-hmm. bow totally. um yeah yeah this is fun yeah <laughs> that's all i have yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming no problem thank you for having me this is great yes i'm so excited to release this into the world yeah. so everyone knows more if you ever um, want me to talk about other stuff other messed up stuff in history i'm happy Oh my gosh, yeah. I have so many. I I want to keep talking about this, yeah, so awesome. you're more than welcome to come back whenever you want. Awesome. Um, hopefully this will be released by the end of July. Yeah, I'm yeah, giving myself nice. that because I'm very bad at pushing myself yeah. creatively. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, before we wrap up, is there anything you want to plug or anything that is going on in your life that you want people to know about yeah certainly a couple things um 
Well, one, I'm a, I'm a co-host of a podcast, a weekly podcast called Vibe Life, um, and I'm in the host of um, releasing that uh, with a really sharp guy named uh, Chillian Thomas. And then also, uh, if anybody who happens to hear this is in need of sort of party photography, um, I do that as well. I shoot uh, pretty cool instant Polaroid uh, pictures, and then you can look out for that Instagram account. It's called Remember the Day. Oh, uh, do you have any social accounts that you want to plug personally where people want to follow you? Yeah, totally. So um, my, my personal Instagram account is uh, Gebrick, G-E-B-R-I-K, 184. And then also you can uh, you can just find me on Instagram as Nicoro Gomes. Awesome. Yay. Awesome. This is great. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>